Today's episode is episode 169 of the Unconventional Humans podcast. Today I'm joined by Ryan A. Bush. Ryan is the author of a new book called Designing the Mind, the Principles of Psychotecture. On today's episode, we explore this book. We explore some of the writing process that went into writing the book. The book, in my opinion, is a blend of psychology, philosophy, and a little bit of this bit of software engineering terminology thrown in there too, for good measure. So Ryan talks about algorithms of the mind. He talks about our habits, behaviors, desire modulation. He talks about self-mastery. And this I this concept of psychotecture, I like this this concept. He explores it in the book. It's about intentionally designing your mind, being conscious with that. So I enjoyed talking to Ryan today. He had a few different ideas to share with us. Quite a bit about Nietzsche in his book, so he he talks a little bit around what drew him to Nietzsche's work. And yeah, I enjoyed just the insights that that Ryan brings to the table. From reading the book, I felt like he's put a lot of research into the book and a lot of lived experience in there too. So I was curious about that, how how he went about writing the book now and, and what actually what life experience was entailed in writing the book and what research and what, what what went into the book. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and thanks again for listening. Okay, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dennis. Happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Uh, yeah, so my first question, just tell us a little bit about you and what you're up to today. Yeah, so uh, about me, I basically come from sort of a design background. I've been working in product design for a while, uh, everything from physical products to apps and software. And I've done uh, mild programming a little bit, but um, uh, for the most part, you know, uh, I've been studying philosophy and psychology since, um, you know, long before I was in college for design. Uh, It's really always been a passion of mine that has sort of continued to grow. And there are a lot of ideas that have sort of that I've been especially interested in that sort of fused together uh, at a certain point. And I sort of decided I needed to write a book about about it. Um, So a lot of what I have studied has been practical philosophy. So things like, uh, you know, Buddhism, Taoism, Stoicism, all the isms, and uh, and then Nietzsche and, and some modern philosophy as well, but really focused on how to live a great life, how to structure your mind, Uh, as opposed to a lot more uh, sort of abstract theoretical philosophical concepts. I'm very interested in applying philosophy to become a better person and, and, and sort of build a better mind. And, and that's sort of what led to this concept of psychotecture, because that's really uh, what it's all about is how to structure your mind um, in the way that, that is best for your long-term well-being. And, and to do it through a sort of uh, rigorous, uh, almost mechanical sense that, and, and a, a systematic sense that really resonates with me. Uh, so I put this book together um, starting in 2019, early 2019, and uh, worked on it for close to two years before publishing it. Um, the book is called Designing the Mind, the Principles of Psychotecture. And uh, it, it dives into a lot of this sort of exploration between philosophy and psychology and, and a little bit of self-help as well. Interesting stuff. Like the philosophy, psychology, do you know how, do you know why you had an interest in that at such a young age? Do you know where that came about? I think we, we all have, have things that we sort of have these little obsessions with. Uh, and some people, it takes them longer to discover them. And some people, you know, the education system basically teaches them that learning isn't fun and, and it isn't cool and, and you shouldn't be interested in things. But I think everyone has their own interests. And, and, you know, it's pretty clear that I just have this sort of internal orientation. I've always been interested in looking at my own mind, observing what's going on in there, my thoughts, my emotions, my, uh, and how they result in actions and behaviors. Um, so it, it really was you know, pretty much from the time I was early, you know, adolescent, I was already thinking about these things, even though I wasn't reading anything yet. I was just sort of asking myself uh, a lot of questions about my own mind. And then, you know, at a certain point, I started reading a lot about it once I sort of discovered the genres and discovered these ancient philosophies uh, that talked about similar things. 
And I felt like, you know, people like Epictetus and Nietzsche, uh, these all sort of had uh, similar minds to mine and, and the fact that they're, they're so interested in uh, systematically understanding the mind and, and happiness and well-being and how we can uh, make changes to achieve it. Um, and, and before long, you know, I was taking notes in an app that I had and, and I had thousands of notes that I couldn't even, you know, realistically go back through. I, I had so much to say about it and so many ideas that I, I decided I needed to put it together into a book. When did you start seeing the overlap between like that systematic way of thinking? Like you talk a little bit about algorithms, like your thoughts, feelings, actions, you use like software engineering kind of terms. When do you start seeing the overlap between the mind, how it works and more of like a software engineering design thinking? Right. Yeah. So when I was um, just starting in college, I was pursuing a computer science degree. Uh, I ended up uh, turning away from that and going towards um, design and you know, kind of visual and functional design. So uh, designing software, but not necessarily coding it. But for a while there, I was learning a little bit of C++. I, I know HTML and CSS and that kind of thing. Um, and ever since I learned just the basic concepts, just how algorithms work, how software works, um, I, I started seeing parallels uh, as I was you know, look, reading philosophy, I was saying, oh, what, what Epictetus is talking about here is making a, an algorithm essentially in your mind that will trigger a certain response as opposed to the one that's already there. Uh, so I was, I was working on improving myself through these terms um, ever since I, I understood, you know, software engineering, ever since I, I understood design. Um, and then, you know, actually going into a design field altered that a little bit too. And, and thinking about the creative component of it and, and how to actually, you know, think about, uh, develop a vision for your yourself and your own mind and to make changes that will so, sort of gradually work towards that vision. Um, but it, it really wasn't until I started studying evolutionary psychology that it clicked for me that uh, this was not just a useful sort of metaphor for, for self-improvement, uh, the mind really can be compared to software. It, it, it might literally be accurate to say it's software, even though we're used to software existing on silicon circuits and, and all this. Um, the substrate isn't necessarily so important, but what is important is that the mind can be understood functionally. It can be understood in terms of what specific modules, specific functions, I call them algorithms, are meant to achieve uh, for you know us in the world of our ancestors, essentially, the way that our minds were shaped is very similar, if if not intentional, so to speak, uh, very comparable to the way that software gets developed and and sort of modified as time goes on. Why was it the evolutionary psychology that that clicked it in your mind this way of thinking? What was different about the evolutionary psychology? Well, it, it's particularly the sort of uh, neo-Darwinian perspective of, of evolutionary psychology, which is essentially that uh, we have been shaped to be uh, good gene propagators, essentially, in the world of our ancestors. And so every function of our mind can be seen as a property that, that, um, that evolution shaped almost as if we were gene passing robots. Essentially, if you were trying to create a robot that would pass your genes from one generation to the next safely, you know, assuming you weren't going to be there to make sure that they stayed protected, you would essentially create a human being if it was in a certain environment. If it was in a different environment, you would create you know, a different organism. But essentially, you, know, you can look at things like uh, jealousy, you know, we have a tendency to look at jealousy as just, oh, that's how life is. We get jealous, we're people. Uh, but if you actually ask uh, the why questions, why is that function built into our minds? Uh, what you end up finding is, well, it would have made total sense for our genes to program, so to speak, that function into our minds. And, and it could be thought of in very much an if-then type of algorithmic sense. If you uh, encounter the certain trigger in your environment, the certain input, of you know your significant other 
that you care about, you know, flirting with someone else or, or whatever, um, then that should trigger a program from a genetic perspective. That should trigger this program that says you should have this emotion and you should take this behavior to prevent that from happening uh, because the, your genes don't want to get uh, demolished, essentially. They want to make sure they get passed on. Um, and what I, what I realized at a certain point, uh, you know, reading books like The Selfish Gene and uh, The Robot's Revolution, uh, sorry, Robot Rebellion, is, um, is that what our genes want for us, the way that our minds are programmed by default, is not necessarily what's good for us, right? Uh, it, it's not necessarily perfect wisdom and, and optimal happiness and, and all these things that we value, right? It's only those things to the extent that it makes us good at passing on our genes. And this is a depressing idea to some until you realize uh, the other properties that our mind happens to have that allows us to essentially take that uh, commandeer that keyboard of our own programming from evolution and modify our own minds deliberately. We're, we're the first species to be able to do that. And I think there's something really incredible about that. When did you, when did you start noticing that you could actually modify your mind and it would get real world results? This was long before I, I had a clue what um, evolutionary psychology was or, or even what practical philosophy was. Uh, when I was, you know, a kid in school, essentially, I was, uh, you know, when something as small as, as a teacher assigning homework over the weekend would happen, you know, some setback, I would see other people getting upset about it. And I would see my own tendency to get upset about it. And I would say, I wonder if I can change this. I, I wonder if I can make some tweak that will cause this not to happen. And what I ended up doing is what I later learned was, um, you know, pretty much one of the major themes within stoicism. It's one of the major themes of cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, uh, you might call it cognitive reappraisal or restructuring, where you actually look at the belief that led to a certain emotion hmm. and uh, you actually change that belief and, and change the way you interpret the stimulus uh, such that you have a different emotional outcome. So if, it, if an emotion doesn't serve you, there are ways to go in and tweak the very patterns underlying them uh, so that you don't have to deal with it on a continual repeated basis every time you encounter this, this real world input. And I was seeing also that, that habits are essentially the same thing. Your behaviors uh, are, are no different from your emotions in this regard. They're essentially these patterns that are programmed into you by default, or they've been shaped through your, your life experiences. And if you continue to do them, you will continue to reinforce those neural patterns, those, those links between uh, certain, you know, an input and a response. But there are ways that you can step in and modify it. And I was also seeing that biases, uh, you know, cognitive biases, the, these habitual ways of misinterpreting and, and, and miscalculating information in, in the world, are, are the same type of thing. These are all algorithms. They're all programmed into us for one reason or another, and they can be modified, but they aren't just modified by saying, I'm gonna try really hard to do it differently this time. They're modified by looking at the actual pattern and saying, how can I actually change this pattern so that it continually throughout my life results in different, ideally better outcomes. Cognitive biases are a big one. And they're also tricky because you're you do need a level of metacognition and self-awareness to transcend above the, those biases. How have you gone about doing that? Is there anything that works for you specifically or get, to get beyond the cognitive biases? Yeah, so, so really, and this goes for all of them, for biases, for emotions, for behaviors, uh, you need to have that metacognition, as you said, you need to have a certain level of mindfulness so that you actually notice what's going on in your head. Because if you don't notice until, you know, hours or days later, what was going on in your head, then how are you really going to step in and change it? Um, and what I recommend for almost everyone is to uh, start doing mindfulness meditation or some, some mindfulness equivalent practice. Um, personally, I've been going on long sort of reflective introspective walks multiple times a week, pretty much my whole life. And that has served me really well. Um, but I think for some people who aren't as uh, sort of metacognitively inclined and, and metacognition, by the way, re refers to thinking about thinking or, 
awareness of your own field of awareness. Uh, for those who have a harder time with this, I think just sitting and focusing on your breathing and focusing on uh, what's going on inside your mind uh, may be a good first step. Um, but going on long walks, I, I think if, if there's one practice I could recommend doing, uh, just go on a walk. You know, it's, a, it's fun. It, it gives you stimulation. It gives you exercise. It gives you vitamin D, but it also gives you an opportunity to really step away from your devices, step away from the constant uh, temptation to, to keep yourself entertained and distracted and to really observe your own mind and ask yourself some questions about your, your beliefs, your values, your, um, you know, what's, what's going on in your life right now and how you're responding to it emotionally. Yeah, I do the similar actually with walking. I do find it, uh, I let the mind wander, I guess, on, on my walks. And like that ideas kind of come to me sometimes on my walks. And it's, uh, again, it's like getting out in fresh air and it's nice. How about for yeah, you with, are yeah, you're going to say something? Yeah, um, it's actually great to not impose any any particular topic, I think, initially, at least when you go on walks, to to just kind of open yourself up and let, thoughts come to you let let these insights arrive because if you are just quiet if you just aren't actively creating noise for your mind you will find often that that insights come to you just like you said but yeah exactly yeah, that's a good thing to mention it's uh i wouldn't find walks that beneficial if i was like in my mind trying to mold things over i'd find it quite stressful but i actually i think i work before i go for a walk a lot of the times it'll be after work i go for a walk and it'll be then allow, allow my mind to kind of relax a bit more, especially if I faced a problem during the day that I couldn't figure out and I was stressed out about. Mm -hmm. I even find with this, how do you, how do you find this awareness of this metacognition, the biases, how does it help you in the moment when you're actually feeling stressed out? So another thing to mention first is, is that it can be very helpful to, uh, study the sort of existing and, and more or less universal biases out there. Um, there are websites like Less Wrong. Um, there are you know tons of lists out there of just all the all the cognitive biases that are generally found across the human race. And uh, although familiar familiarity isn't probably going to do a lot for you by itself, it's sort of a, an important initial step. You you want to know the types of mistakes that your mind is likely to make habitually. Um, but so then once you've done both of those things, once you're uh, fairly observant into what's going on in your own mind and you know some of the things to look out for and some of the biases, uh, you will start finding these things appearing in your, in your life. You will start finding, um, you know, you can take the fundamental attribution error where, you know, an, an example would be, you know, if you're late for work, you, you tend to think, oh, well, I was late because... Uh, I was in traffic because this happened, because that happened. If someone else is late for work, you, you tend to think, oh, well, they're late because they're, they're a lazy person or something. Um, so, so we have these biases that are, that are generally found. And when you are aware of it and you're, note, and you're paying attention to yourself, you'll often see these things pop up and you'll say, oh, I just found an example of that bias in myself. I need to work on this. Right. And what you want to do is really focus on that initial belief that, that's essentially creating that and put together some kind of strategy for altering it. So I, I look at the planning fallacy and this is a great example uh, because Daniel Kahneman, you know, pretty much the pioneer of cognitive bias, he's said himself, like there is a cure for this one that, that we have pretty much found. Uh, the planning fallacy means you, you tend to really underestimate how long it's going to take you to do something. So when someone asks you for, you know, a time that you can do it by, you'll pick a deadline that's probably way early, um, way earlier than it will actually take. You know, they, they do these studies where they'll ask students, like, what day do you think you'll have this essay complete by? Uh, you know, give me a 90% confidence when, you'll, when you think you'll have this done by. And they'll say, like, I would say, like, maybe three weeks before the deadline or something. And in reality, most of them are finished, like, the day before the deadline. Uh, so we have this fallacy that makes us think, oh, I'll probably get it done in exactly the shortest amount of time that it could be done. And there will be no setbacks that, that make it take longer. Um, so the key to, to overcoming this bias is to quit asking yourself how quick you think you can do something 
and instead start asking yourself how long it generally takes people, how long it generally takes you uh, and others to do that thing uh, in the past. And if you're thinking, I, I think I can have it done in a week, uh, and I really feel like that's true, but history tells me it takes three weeks to get it done, then that's essentially what you should assume. And once you become aware of, of that, you sort of start to habitually say, okay, it's going to take three weeks. It's going to take the amount of time it normally takes. And you sort of, uh, you sort of change that bias. You alter uh, the way that your mind works on that. And uh, I don't want to imply that they're all simple to get rid of or that there's one solution for doing it. And that's why, you know, the term is psychotexture. It's a, it's a creative design process. It, it will require a different solution for everyone. How did that word come to you, the psychotexture? What was the thing you were trying to describe that that word encapsulated? Yeah, um, you know, it's really sort of this combination of the mind and um, and then the design process, essentially, you know, it's architecture. It's It's not fundamentally different, even though we can't see our minds in, in the same visual sense. We can't see other people's minds and we don't necessarily have proof of the pro progress that other people have made with their minds. Uh, but it, it is a design process where you're asking, what does the ideal look like? What is my ideal mind? What is my ideal self like? And what actual changes can I make? What strategies and, and individual actions can I take to get there? And so with my background in design, I was seeing those parallels. And I thought psychotexture was sort of just the perfect term. You know, you've got software architecture as well, which, which kind of fits with the sort of software algorithms uh, ideas. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I, I realized that even though this is not a, a new concept of psychotexture, uh, there really isn't a good word for it. We've got, you know, therapy, which applies to, you know, improving yourself psychologically if you're sort of below this line of psychological adequacy. If you feel like something's wrong uh, with your mind, then you can go to therapy. And then on the, on the positive side, you've got like self-help, uh, but that's on its own, it's very sort of undirected and vague and fluffy, um, inspirational. You know, there, there wasn't a term for this real process of actually modifying and, and designing and creating uh, better patterns in your own mind, even though, you know, you can find philosophers talking about this thousands of years ago. So I felt like it was a, a necessary term, really. You always find yourself drawn to more of the, I suppose, like the, like the ancient thinkers, the people who stood the test of time. Was that something innate in you or was it, did you learn that someday that it's good to listen to people that have ideas that stood the test of time? You know, I think in some ways it's actually a bias that we have such reverence for these ancient ideas. I mean, there's no reason why there couldn't be a, a recent or modern thinker uh, with just as much insight. Um, but I find that you you don't see it as much. You don't see people, um, you know, providing these really insightful analyses of how to actually practically achieve happiness and, and how to build a better mind. Uh, it's not totally absent. You know, the, the self-help world has a few hidden gems in it, but a lot of the time uh, it, it just doesn't feel like, like you're getting that much value out of it. Whereas if you go back and read uh, meditations by Marcus Aurelius or, you know, uh, Epictetus's manual, you find there's so much insight that, that so clearly applies to your life today. It's like it could have been written today. So I do think that's why it stood the test of time. And I think there's something to that idea that ideas that have been around for a long time can have a lot of value, but it can also mean that they're just sticky, that they just uh, have, have sort of stuck in people's minds for one reason or another, um, like, a, like a virus almost. So you shouldn't assume that because an idea is old, it's necessarily more valuable than, than an idea that's you know, very recent, right? Mm. Well, Nietzsche comes up quite a bit in your book. You quote him quite a lot. What what was what drew you to Nietzsche? Studying Nietzsche. Yeah, good question. I I I don't remember exactly when I started reading Nietzsche. Uh, I think it was probably early college. Um, but it it was clear that that there was a lot that resonated with me um, at that time, and and even now. I think Nietzsche is viewed as uh, the sort of uh, immature thinker. And in some ways, as a person, he was sort of immature in, in a few ways, but uh, 
Um, I think the idea is even though you have to read a lot of his work and a lot of secondary work to even figure out what he's trying to say, I think there's a lot that's really valuable there. I mean, he, he in many ways called for a return to a virtue ethics type of view um, that sort of, uh, that, that you see, saw more in Aristotle and the Stoics, you know, a long time ago, but, but the world seemed like it was moving away from with uh, utilitarianism, with, with this idea that, that we can calculate um, good that we do in the world. And, and Nietzsche put the focus on the individual and, and the mind, really, and, um, and sort of, you know, you have, to, um, you have to read a lot to sort of decipher it. But I think one of his main contributions is arguing that uh, there is something to this idea of virtue and of greatness of the individual mind uh, that goes beyond this uh, very simplistic, uh, almost calculated uh, idea of ethics and, and of, um, you know, what it means to be a good person. So, um, you know, one of, one of his big issues was with this sort of hedonistic idea that um, we can measure good in the world by the amount of pleasure or the absence of pain, essentially. Um, and I think, you know, Brave New World uh, by Aldous Huxley really, really illustrates the what what Nietzsche was worried about and the world that he was trying to avoid this world where we're all basically blissed out where we have no negative emotion. Uh, but we're not really aligning with our ideals, the way I look at it, we're not really achieving human greatness, we're just minimizing discomfort. And, and I think he was really focused on, you know, what does a great individual look like? What does even the ideal individual, if there is such a thing, look like? Um, and there are a few different ways that that sort of applies throughout the book. But, but I think it is really important that we have a vision of what a great, you know, ideal human is, or even at least, you know, what, what our ideal self is as individuals. You mentioned the book, Quite a bit about values as well. When did you start honing in your own values? Well, I, I was focused on my values from from the time I was a teenager. I, I think, you know, on those introspective walks, uh, I would put together, you know, I, I would come home from those and create like this color-coded mind map of my own personal identity and what was important to me. I would create, you know, mission statements and and I've pretty much changed and, and revised my, my personal mission statement every three years or so since then. But it became clear just how important this kind of introspective insight is. You, you, you really will, you can live an entire life uh, basically misguided and based on other people's values and wonder why you're not achieving that, that fulfillment and that satisfaction if you haven't really gotten acquainted with your own and, and sort of gotten rid of what you know, your parents told you what was important, gotten rid of what your, your friends or your culture told you what was important, and studying philosophy, studying different cultures, uh, figuring out what is really important to you. Because I think just in the, in the same way that we have genetic variation that can be very important between individuals, we have value variation. Mm. Even though we're, we may be 99% the same, I think that 1% can be really important. And, it, and it's important to know uh, what's important to you individually. Um, and, and, you know, at one point, I think when I was starting the book, I thought that the goal was going to be similar to what it's, it appears to be, at least at first glance, in Stoicism. Um, Stoicism is all about minimizing disturbance and achieving peace and tranquility and, and evenness of mind. And I was sort of thinking initially, that's what this is, that's what psychotecture is all about. It, it's about getting rid of these negative emotions. Uh, but what I slowly started to realize as I was working on it is that uh, our values are really a much better guide to uh, living a great life and being a great person than just the minimization of emotion, of negative emotion and, and pain. I think there will be times when uh, your ideal self might experience pain or, or might suffer in a certain situation. And in those cases, you want to align with those values. You want to align with your ideals. So you want to program yourself to act in a way that, that your ideal self would, essentially. And that ha has basically become the highest aim of psychotecture for me. It's to take that ideal self and match it through your psychological software. Find, find the algorithmic changes that are needed to, to realize that ideal as, as much as possible. So like talking there about minimizing negative emotions and stoics. So 
would you say that you feel the negative emotions and your values help you to align you with the correct action to take from those negative emotions or how does it align for you? Uh, the way I look at it is that your, your values tell you how you would react, how you should react in a certain situation. So, you know, for some people, maybe, you know, when, when you've been wronged, uh, anger is the appropriate reaction. Maybe, you know, you should get angry when, when someone else insults you. Um, for me, I, I think, uh, based on my values, uh, humor and, and levity can pretty much always do a better job of dealing with the situation than anger. So anger is an example of emotion I try to, to virtually eliminate from my mind because uh, I don't think it does a lot of good in, in almost any situation. Um, you know, compassion is one that I think can be very useful. Uh, sometimes it can can hurt you and, and make cause you to suffer on the behalf of someone else. Um, and in some cases, that's not useful and it doesn't serve your goals or your values. You aren't helping that other person by suffering along with them. In other cases, you may be helping them and, and it may be beneficial to have uh, that that uh, empathy uh, or that guilt even in some cases in place. So I think it, it's about deciding on a case by case basis you know, what person do I want to be and what emotions will help push me in that direction and which ones are, are pushing me away from it. So you would, um, in the book also, you'd interesting ideas about way people categorize good and evil. You talked about in terms more of uh, self-slavery, I think self-mastery self, self is the other, is the goal. But yeah, if you just talk a little bit around that, your ideas on that. Yeah, uh, you know, some people have had sort of a negative reaction to the term slavery or self-slavery. Mm. And uh, I think really that that's kind of the goal. I, I want it to seem very undesirable. I want it to seem negative and, and unpleasant. Uh, because really, I think the idea that there is this objective right and wrong, good and evil, uh, I think it's kind of naive and um, and kind of immature. And I think we need to move towards a better framework for understanding. To me, wisdom sort of embodies uh, a better way of looking at uh, rightness or wrongness than, than just that very objective, this is moral, this is immoral. And a lot of times you'll see people act in a way that appears immoral uh, when they really lack wisdom. They, they believe what they're doing is in their best interest uh, and it very likely isn't. So, you know, uh, honesty is a, is a great example. Most people lie on a, on a daily basis uh, in the name of, you know, expediency, in the name of helping out their goals and their self-interested goals. Um, you know, very often being honest uh, actually serves your goals better in the long term. Uh, I won't say 100% of the time, but most of the times when it's easy to lie to get out of a situation, uh, you would actually get a better result if you were honest, right? And, and we don't have to appeal to this idea that... Um, that there is this second consideration of rightness or wrongness, right? You can decide what is the best decision in a holistic sense, all things considered. Uh, and to me, that is that represents wisdom. Whereas saying, what would serve my narrow self-interest best? And then saying, is that right or wrong? Uh, that's kind of this outdated idea that, that there is this morality. And to me, uh, I think it, it, it's sort of like training wheels for wisdom in a way, you know, these, these simple rights and wrongs. Uh, so I'm interested in developing cognitive self-mastery, which I call wisdom, right? It's, it's essentially the ability to both think rationally about what's true and what's um, a good strategy to achieving it, but also uh, having insight into your own mind and knowing what really results in your own satisfaction versus what results in just very, very temporary pleasure and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's also about having emotional self-mastery. So someone with a high degree of wisdom could still not have any control over their emotions and lash out. And essentially, this is what I see in, in school shooters and that type, people who have been hurt and who have suffered and who have no other option because they don't know how to manage their emotions than to go and lash out and take it out on, on generally totally innocent people. Um, and then you have behavioral self-mastery, right? You have people who might be emotionally stable. They might have a clear view of the world in theory, uh, but they end up, you know, acting out in, in negative ways. They, they don't have control over their own actions. So when you combine all three of these types of self-mastery together, I think what you end up with is, is a person who will look like, like a saint from a moral perspective, 
but they don't necessarily have to be using um, this outdated view. They, they can be simply asking, you know, what is the best decision for me in my life? What will help my long-term goals and will help serve the things that I care about? And I, I don't want to imply that it's uh, purely self-interested as opposed to altruistic, uh, because I think those, are, those can be sort of two sides of the same coin, right? What you care about is what you care about, and it probably extends beyond you. It probably extends to your family. It probably extends to uh, different causes uh, and, and humanity overall. So ultimately, if you're asking these questions of how can I best achieve what matters to me, uh, I, think, I think that represents uh, self-mastery and wisdom. And that's, that's really, you know, the opposite of that is essentially what we would call evil, someone who lacks all of those positive qualities and doesn't have any control over these different modes. Uh, those, are, those are the worst people. Uh, and really, the reason is because certain positive qualities haven't been cultivated in them they haven't gone through the psychotextural process of changing these, these default behaviors and, and these default thoughts and turning them into something better. Where do you think we're at with, with introspection in society today? Because what you're talking about there is a lot of nuance, there's a lot of introspection that goes into these questions, I think, to get them individual to you. Just kind of wondering where do you think we're at right now? I don't think we're doing too great. Uh, personally, uh, I see a lot of people who don't give any thought to the idea of, of introspection. Uh, and I think this is actually probably getting more common as there as we have more and more ways to distract ourselves. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of self-control, really, to not spend your time on social media or watching Netflix or playing video games and actually pause and, and examine your own mind. And we aren't talking about the importance of it overall. Uh, I'm actually coming out with a a product probably later this year that will be a deck of introspection cards. So the idea is that you'll take one of these cards out of this deck and you'll you know put it in your pocket and go on a walk and think about whatever's on it. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that I, I'll tell people I'm working on this and they're always confused. They're, they're always like, wait, what is, I've never heard of that before. Why would you need that? Um, you know, meanwhile, we've got tarot cards which are blowing up right now. You can you see them in every bookstore. And it's basically total you know, nonsense. It, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, not that things like that can't give you any introspective insight, but I think this should be a common thing that everyone realizes is important to their, uh, their mental health in the same way that you need uh, you know, sleep and exercise and nutrition in the same way that you need social interaction to be happy. You also need to step away from social interaction, spend time with yourself and reflect and get to know yourself. I think that is absolutely one of the essential components to a good life. It's funny you mentioned that there in the tarot card and the introspection card. For me, it just kind of demonstrates that we're so fixated on answers from somebody else than we are asking a question and find your own answers. That's uh, well, well put. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. It's a pity. But yeah, sometimes I get disheartened with, with what you're talking about there. But then I also feel like maybe it's that people haven't experienced this enough now because the culture has so consumed us into a certain way of living that maybe when more and more people awaken to this, they'll realize this is actually a better balance here to be, to be moving in this direction. I, I think so. And I, I think there's definitely an opportunity and, and it's a big part of my mission to to bring that voice to people and to expose them to these ideas that there's a whole world uh, inside your head that you can learn about, you can study, you can modify, you can mm. you can shape it into what you want it to be. And we're, we're so focused on the external as a general rule, uh, particularly where I'm at. I think America is the uh, the world capital of achievement out there uh, as opposed to uh, achievement in here. And, and I think you can get a lot further, a lot quicker with this one. Um, but, but everyone has this, uh, I must achieve this. I must make this money, this career progress, my resume, my, uh, you know, what you name it, essentially that's how we've been trained. And, and, um, you know, I think that we need alternate voices saying you don't have to make your life completely about what you do out there. That's not to say you can't do great things out there. Mm -hmm. If anything, it'll help you do great things out there. Right? If anything, my focus on my mind has helped me to write this book because I couldn't, I couldn't not once I, once I had all these ideas floating around in my head. Um, but, but I think you focus on your own mind first and then you move outward from there. Yeah. 
Actually, that's what I was going to go on to next. How did you know it was the right time to write a book? I think you'll know. I think I think you'll know because, you know, I had so many ideas that were all fitting into this common framework. Uh, for a lot of people, it's very likely that you have an entire book in your head and don't realize it, though. So maybe you, maybe you won't always know. Uh, but if you have, you know, interesting thoughts that, and, and interesting perspectives that you aren't hearing elsewhere, that you aren't hearing in other books, if you have a different take on something, uh, you could probably write a book. Uh, but in my case, it was much more of a, I, I don't have another choice, right? I can't just, I can't just ignore uh, these ideas that have been building up in my mind and, and ignore this perspective and keep it to myself. I, I need to share it with the world. And, um, you know, I ended up going part-time at my job, taking a 60% pay cut so that I could make it happen. Um, but I, I really think at a certain point, your identity demands certain things from you, right? Who, the person you think you are, will tell you that there's no excuse for you not to do this uh, except for pure comfort. So if you don't do it, I think, I think there will be negative outcomes that, that may not be totally visible, but, but you'll know in the back of your mind, if you're being called to do something and you turn away from it and, and stay in your comfortable position, right? Mm -hmm. I think that will eat away at you and, and it'll become apparent that you are not aligning with those ideals. You're not aligning with your own identity. Um, and, and I think, uh, I think you have to take that leap when, when you find yourself in that situation. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like you would annoy yourself about like, so I'd be looking at the world and there's certain things I'm unhappy with, at least when I create a podcast or write a book, I'm getting it off my chest and I have no reason to be like fixated in on the stuff I don't like as much. It helps me to reshift my focus on like what's possible. I can create things, focus on opportunities rather than giving out about the things I don't like. And from what we're talking about today, I've done similar stuff with, with becoming aware of cognitive biases. It has helped me to get connected with my intuition. That was so, it was so like uh, covered over with layers of confusion of default thoughts taken in by the culture around me that the more I've, um, I suppose, excavated all that stuff away, got clear more on like my own answers. It's allowed me to understand what that feels like to follow my intuition a lot stronger than before. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's unfortunately, it's easy to be misled about your own intuitions. And that's why you do have to go through this process. Uh, I, I say in the book that, you know, the, the process of really getting in touch with your values is about taking a philosophical wrecking ball to what you think is important and seeing what remains, right? Ask questions, probe you know, look at, look at those things that you think are true and ask, why do I think this is true, right? What if it weren't true? What would that mean? Uh, what evidence do I have for this? And eventually, if you're engaged in this process for years or even decades, you're going to have a huge amount of insight. So, so I think it is about, you know, putting that time in consistently over your life, you will make major progress, uh, you know, across your whole life. Long term. And so even technically with your book, what was it like for you to get the chapters formulated in your mind? What was that process like? How did you know how to divide it up? Yeah, I mean, you, you could look through my notes, uh, through the history, and it's really interesting to, to see all the different structures that I sort of worked through and, and progressed through. Because when I started on the book, I definitely didn't have a crystal clear idea of how it was going to be structured. And I think you know, I, I didn't really even have the, the self-mastery triad that, that makes up the core uh, sort of backbone of the book. Um, I didn't know how I was going to structure it. And I sort of just started writing. And then one structure became clear. And then I shared that with people, got some feedback from it, said, this isn't quite right. Um, and then kept restructuring until I got to the one that, that just did feel right. And I had this insight that you really can sort of break up the human mind into the, the cognitive and the emotional and the behavioral. And then I gave three chapters to each. Um, and and it, it kind of worked out nicely because the first two chapters of each section is essentially two different tools, two different modes of working with that, um, with that area. And then the third chapter kind of brings them together and says, this is, this is what it looks like when you combine those things. Uh, and here's how you sort of navigate that. So in the cognitive section, you've got 
the first chapter is about rationality. The second one is about introspection. And the third one is putting them together for wisdom. Uh, in the emotional section, the first one is sort of cognitive restructuring. The second one is uh, desire modulation. And the third one is bringing them together for equanimity uh, and emotional peace. And the third chapter, you've got self-direction and self-control and bringing them together into self-mastery, uh, which sort of doubles as the conclusion for the whole triad. Uh, so I think it ended up in a really elegant way that, that gave me better understanding of my own mind through writing the book and, and really helped me crystallize uh, my ideas and, and sort of solidify them. Um, but it, it was definitely a, a fluid process where I had to try a lot of different structures and, and, uh, and, and figure out what made the most sense. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of like implementing the Feynman technique writing a book, I think, is it? Yeah, it's, it's similar. I, I've heard a little bit about the Feynman technique, um, but I've never really uh, studied it and, and tried to apply it. I've sort of, um, sort of paved my own way and, and figured out along the way how to, how to do it. But um, yeah, definitely similar. No, it's good. Yeah, like it's a... Uh... I think it's a process that crystallizes your ideas in your mind. But then I suppose there's a balance there because your ideas are going to evolve and change over time again. But I think it's like uh, you reach a milestone, then you're ready to move on to the next milestone. So have you had any plans to write another book, you think? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my my future plans. So I said I'm working on that that introspection deck. Hopefully mm -hmm. that'll be out this year. I'm also building an online course and a whole sort of tranquility training program. Hopefully the first course of which, which will probably be on anxiety, uh, will also be out this year. And then my plan currently is to start towards the beginning of next year on the next book and hopefully have it out during next year. We'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, so the next book is likely going to be on the, uh, the idea that is really found across practical philosophy uh, which is found in the term amor fati, which means the love of fate or the love of one's fate. Um, you, you see this in Stoicism, you see it in Taoism, you see it in Nietzsche, right? And, and it really connects very closely to this idea um, of psychotecture. You know, it fits in pretty well because one of the best, you know, optimizations that you can make to your mind if you want to live a great life is to learn how to uh, embrace the good, embrace the bad, so-called, um, and really see your life as this continually expanding work of art instead of this very simplistic way of seeing it as, uh, you know, this good thing happened, but then this bad thing happened and I was happy and then I was sad. You know, if you can really master this, this uh, mindset that, that you see in all these different philosophies, uh, you, can, you can make a huge leap forward in your personal development. And I won't claim to be to have totally perfected it, uh, but I, I do notice myself in a lot of situations being good about saying this seems bad on the surface, but in the past, I've learned that things that seem bad at the time, five years later, generally seem either neutral, I don't care about it, or it's actually good that it went the way it did. Um, so, so sort of bringing that uh, future retrospective perspective <laughs> and applying it to right now and saying, yeah. how can I view what's happening to me now uh, with, the, with the insight and, and this sort of uh, wise ambiguity that I would have when looking back on it later. That is very true, actually. It's, uh, I think we've all probably experienced points in our lives where it was a very bad situation. And then down the line, we realized it actually helped us to grow in some area. So it's, like you're saying, I think it's best to bring that awareness to the present moment being open to the idea that this might unfold in a way I don't expect it would actually turn out better than, or it'll, it'll aid to my growth in some way that I, I don't see right now. So yeah, it's the yeah. fate part there, isn't it? Amor fate. That's Latin, is it? It is, yeah. The love of fate. Yeah. And, and you see it in, you know, Sto the Stoics talked about how uh, these good and bad things that happen to us are actually indifferent. And if you actually see them as good and bad, then you, you haven't trained your mind properly to see them as indifferent. You know, the, these, the only thing that actually matters is virtue, what, what they called virtue, or essentially how you respond, uh, you know, the, the strengths that you show and the way that you respond to these things that happen to you. So uh, it sort of trains you to start looking at uh, the way you act and, and your character and saying, this is the only thing that actually matters. So when I 
you know, have this bad thing happen to me when I lose my job, when I, when I go through this breakup, um, that's not actually bad, but it, it would be bad if I responded it, to it in a way that, that was of a negative character or didn't show virtue. So it's sort of changing the way that you measure uh, what's good and what's bad in your life, uh, I think can be really helpful. And that's a big part of what the Stoics tried to get across. Again, it, it totally connects to, to Nietzsche as well. I mean, this idea that, that really it's not about this simple, you know, pleasure or pain, comfort or discomfort. These are distractions, they're decoys, right? What, what's really important is who you are and who you continue to be, who you program yourself to be, uh, and the character that, that you show, uh, regardless of what's going, what you're going through. That's a good point. It's, like, it's the focus on the character building and yeah, good and bad judgments or human judgments. That's a good thing to keep in mind. And do you have an idea of the core ideas to this next book already, or is that something? It's coming out? together, but mm. uh, in the same in the same way as as um, you know, this book. It, I think it'll probably evolve a lot as I go. So I don't want to to say too much because it'll probably be very different a year from now. But uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. It's going to be a very different book from from this this current one in a lot of ways. Uh, I think you know it's similar in a lot of ways, but it'll probably resonate more with people who uh, read typical sort of self-help spiritual books versus the very rationalist mechanistic uh, perspective that that you see in designing the mind. So uh, I want to make clear that there are a lot of different levels and a lot of ways of of viewing and speaking about the mind uh, versus, uh, you know, one book saying this is the right way to view it. Um, You know, a lot of different things can be true on different levels. Yeah, I like that. It's the taking on different schools of thoughts and it's it is people express things in different ways and often the essence is the same but expressed through different mediums through different lenses kind of the understanding that we all speak in different languages even within the same language absolutely yeah Yeah, and and different things resonate with different types of people who are at different stages in their personal development so ideally you want to you want to create things that uh, have something for everyone and that can reach everyone and positively impact them. Perfect. That well, was great, t- great talking to you today, Ryan. I enjoyed talking about philosophy, psychology, a bit of software engineering terms as well. Um, where would people find you online if they wanted to check out more of your work? Uh, yeah, Dennis, it's been great talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it's been a, an especially interesting uh, conversation, but uh, you can find me on designingthemind.org. I would head there first and you can find the link to Get the book on Amazon if you want. Uh, I would love for you to get the free 50-page guide that will um, you know, sort of explain some of these ideas. And it'll also get you on my email list if you want to be on it. You can unsubscribe if not, but uh, you'll get this guide that sort of introduces you to a lot of these ideas, has a lot of book recommendations. Um, but yeah, everything is through designingthemind.org. So and there. Perfect. Yeah, no, I definitely recommend giving it a read. I, I read it there and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. So yeah, so thanks again, Ryan. Until next time, have fun and enjoy the process.